tonight. I know there's so many costumes to choose from. It's a paralyzing question. Go ahead and make yourselves comfortable. Find yourself a place to hang out. The question was, is what is your favorite movie costume? Interesting fact for those of you who grew up watching the original Wizard of Oz from 1939, right? Raise your hand if you grew up watching that. You were maybe a kid when you saw that, the first Wizard of Oz, right? I know I did. Did you know, interesting fact, that the lion outfit worn by Burt Lahr, he is the original guy, the, the, the lion, that that is, to, to date, the most sought-after and valuable movie costume of all time. It's worth several million dollars. Isn't that amazing? When I read that, I immediately started thinking of all these other movie costumes I'd rather have than that one, right? I'm thinking, why is that one so valuable? I was thinking of um, the Karate Kid's gi, Rambo's headband, Darth Vader's helmet, Superman's cape. I mean, it goes on and on and on forever. You know what the one I landed on was? The puffy jacket that Marty McFly wore in Back to the Future. That's the one I'd want hanging up in my room. The reason... <laughs> The reason the Cowardly Lion's outfit is so valuable and so sought after is that was made back in the, in the late 30s whenever they made a movie. They only made like one of something. I'm sure Marty McFly had 20 of those jokers hanging around. You know, one for this scene, another for that scene. This one's going to get destroyed. That one's not. One lion outfit. It was 60 pounds. That's how much it weighed. It was made out of real lion skin. Real lion skin. 60. If you're from PETA, that was a long time ago. I'm sure they don't do that anymore. The mane on that outfit was imported hair, real hair from Italy. I mean, they spent a lot of money on it. They, the, the money that went into that would, would buy a nice car today, and that was back in the 30s. So whenever they restored this costume for the, the most recent auction at which it was sold at several million dollars, it took 20 specialists over two years to restore that to good condition. Isn't that amazing? I can't get my head around that. This is what the owner said. The, the current owner of that outfit. He said, most of us cannot relate to not having a brain or a heart, but we can all relate to not having enough courage. And it is for this reason I believe the cowardly lion is the character we respond to the most. I think I agree. I, not like wisdom is easy to find. Right? And having a heart or compassion, that can be a little bit of an uphill climb for me as well. But when it comes to deciding whether I'm going to be cowardly or courageous, I think cowardice is just much, much easier for me to find. I think it's just easier to be a coward. I think I could totally resonate with that character. In the book, The Wizard of Oz, a little bit different from the movie, the lion shows up at Oz and the wizard is giving away gifts. And to the lion, he gives a drink. Um, in the book, it's, it's in a little green vial, a little green drink. He pulls off a shelf. Scholars today, I don't know what a scholar for that book looks like, but literary scholars today, they say that that was actually gin that was pulled off, hence the term liquid courage, right? I don't know if I believe that. I think liquid courage is a statement that probably goes all the way back to Egypt, but that's where they say that phrase came from. So the wizard of Oz takes the green vial off the shelf and gives it, and the lion says, what is this? Oz answered, well, if it were inside of you, it would be courage. You know, of course, that courage is always inside of one, so this really cannot be called courage until you've swallowed it. Therefore, I advise you to drink it as soon as possible. The lion hesitated no longer, but drank till the dish was empty. 
How do you feel now? Asked Oz. Full of courage, he says. Listen, I wish it was that easy. Don't you? I wish it was just as easy as pulling something off a shelf and drinking it. Now, we don't have those freaky flying monkey things, those creepy deals haunting us, but I would say that we have more. We have things around us that require more courage than even that. I think I do, especially when it comes to working and living close to people in this city, in this church, in the body of Christ. I feel like I need courage. I feel like I need Jesus to bring me something to put on the inside of me so that I am not so much of a cowardly lion. In fact, if we could just take a second, I'd love to pray with you. Who is in your life right now that needs you to be courageous? Maybe it's someone at work. Maybe it's someone that loves Jesus. Maybe someone does not love Jesus. Maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's someone in this room. But who is it in your life that is waiting for you, needing you to be strong, brave? I'd love to pray for that, just real quickly. Father, I thank you that you have put people in our lives that we can invest and be responsible for and contribute to. I just know too often how easy it is for me to sidestep the one relationship that needs the most courage. But Father, you've given us those people because they need great help. And we... We have an opportunity to look like you, to image you, to be a portrait of you as we take bold steps and we are brave for the hurting, the dying, the needy, even the selfish, the sinning, the wayward. God, you've, you've given us everything we need. So we pray that as we look at the passage today and as we let you address our heart, that you would continually remind us of who it is that we need to be courageous for, that we could take steps even after today, first in our heart and then in person. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, some passages just get stuck in your head, right? Um, I've had a passage that's been stuck in my head for years. I've never actually preached on it, but it's newly been, I guess, stuck in my mind for the last few weeks. And so I thought what we would do is kind of change up the playlist a little bit and take a quick detour from the book of John, which we've been going through for about 40 weeks, and look at an Old Testament passage that is a bit covered in dust, um, but I think it does a very brilliant job of pointing to Jesus, and I think for me it might be a life passage, or at least one of my life passages. Um, it's going to be a passage in 2 Samuel, so go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel, and we'll read it here in just a moment together as a church. I think today would be a cool day to look at this because it's going to synthesize the last three weeks that we've been going through. Um, I feel like God has been doing something very special with our church in the last three weeks because we've been hammering on some very key essentials of who we are. Three weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, prays for you and I to be faithfully sent, faithful missionaries, that we would be sent into Knoxville as Jesus was sent to us. And then two weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus continued to pray, but prayed that we would be faithful in community to each other, that we would be one as he was one, and therefore show the world in such a way that they would believe. And then last week, we looked at a very, 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 very bad day that Peter had, and we saw that how even covered and draped with shame, we could have confidence before the throne of God and what that looked like. And I think these are three giant ideas that helped us build this church. John 17, the passage that we've looked at the last two or three weeks, happens to be one of those, 
I guess, cornerstone passages that were in our mind whenever we drafted who we, we could look like as a church. Our three values, you can even find them on our website, our three values are gospel, community, and mission. There's really not much we do or talk about that doesn't touch one, if not all three of those things at any given moment. Gospel, community, and mission. Gospel, the good news of God for mankind through the person of Jesus. Good for you, graceful to you, given to you, totally despite you. Community, the, the, the proximity and the people that are formed by the blood of Jesus. Us, the church. Right? Mission, the thing that we are invited into that God is rapidly pursuing outside these walls, maybe even inside these walls. That's why you'll hear us say occasionally, we are a people by the gospel for the gospel. Not just a people, but a people that enjoy Jesus and enjoy making disciples who also enjoy Jesus. That's why if you don't love community and you don't love connection, you might not be comfortable here and that's just because we're always talking about it. You'll always feel like we're talking about it too much. It's going gonna, it's gonna to sound like it's just kind of rote. Here he is. We're just talking about community again. feels like we talk about community every week. It might start to wear on you. If you don't like the idea of pouring your heart out for a broken city, a city that is just covered in shame, a city that needs help, a city that needs Jesus, if that doesn't excite you, you you're eventually going to just grow uncomfortable here because we haven't even got started. I mean, not, not in my eyes. We're nowhere near where I want to be as a church invested in the city. We've had people leave Legacy because they feel like we are too big on community or too big on mission, and we can't only help but just say we haven't even really started yet. These are big things for us. But with these values in mind, gospel, community, and mission, what happens when we fail to be strong and courageous for each other? What happens? Now, these are tough questions. Do people go to hell because we're silent? Do people go to hell because we are inactive? Is there blood on our hands or not? Where does our responsibility start? Where does it stop? Will Knoxville slip into ruin if the church sits on its hands? Is it all on our shoulders? What about when we fail each other? Waiting, watching as those around us self-destruct when they slide towards ruin and we just let it happen. What happens? Where, again, does our responsibility begin and where does it end? These are, these are hard questions, but they're worth asking, aren't they? I think this passage today can frame it up for us a little bit. So let's look at 2 Samuel 10. You're going to be in the 10th chapter. I love both Samuels and both kings. I love the narrative of the kings of Israel, particularly the one of David and Solomon. Those are the two reigns that I'm most fascinated by. But this passage, just to build the context, is freshly after when David takes the throne, okay? So there's a lot of wars going on, and there happens to be a threat from the Syrian army. So David sends out Joab and Abishai. He sends out his top men to a battle. Very routine matter. They're fighting battles all the time. This one's a little bit different, though. We're going to look in verse 9 of chapter 10. This is going to be a great passage. It's going to show us Jesus very clearly today. Verse 9 says this. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. 
But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that, the Syrians fled. They likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. I want you to imagine being in this very real moment. This really happened. A lot of grit, a lot of emotion. I know what happens is time, a lot of time between us and them, and that starts to kind of cleanse and scrub away some of the reality of a passage like this. But it's a very real thing. So just try to slip into their shoes just for a moment. Smell the war. See the frightened faces. That's what I imagine anyway. These are armies that are not, not uh, strangers to fighting. Many battles, many wars. Some of them have a lot of scars. They've had a lot of victory dinners. They've lost a lot of friends. They know what battle looks like, yet this one's a little bit different. I imagine more of a panicked look on their face, maybe a little bit more of a frightened heart in their chest because they see they showed up to fight, but now it's set against them. The battle lines are set against them, both in front and behind, and it's too late to go back. They're surrounded. That's what this means. The battle lines are not favorable for them anymore. I would imagine that they immediately also start thinking of the people that they left behind, family, friends, loved ones, the one right next to them on their right and on their left. What, what could happen if they fail? If they fail to be courageous, if they fail to be strong, I imagine they think of all of these things. I imagine also that they're asking God for things. Maybe not wisdom and compassion. If I was in their shoes, I'd be asking for bravery and courage. I think that's what's most needed here. That's why I also imagine the spark of life that came in all of them when Joab gives what, in my opinion, and I do study the man, in my opinion, this is Joab's finest moment, his finest speech, his finest moment. He says basically to everyone, be strong and brave and courageous for your people and for the cities of our God and let everything fall where it falls. Let God be God. Let him do what he deems to be brilliant and good in his sight. It's a great little, great little preach. This is the passage that is going to be above the, the door in my office. I'm still building my office now, but when I'm done, this is going to be the, the phrase up there, or maybe even on my tombstone. And this will be the passage that's on my tomb, or maybe a tattoo, right? Or a shirt, so that they're cheaper than tattoos and don't hurt as much. I might just get it on a shirt, but it is a life passage for me because it's a call to action. It's a call to action that I need to hear, the one to be courageous. I find so often every day there are so many opportunities to be courageous around me, but that also in my eyes I see just as many opportunities to be a coward, to fail, right? You see, cowardice is the opposite of courage, and it is our natural inclination. It's what we inherited from our original parents, cowardice. We, we inherited a lot of things, but courageousness is not what we inherited. That is not deep down within you. I know that's what the culture tells you, and that's what the Wizard of Oz thinks, but they're all wrong. You don't have a spark of courage inside of you. That comes from without. That comes from another source. 
When people tell you that they were courageous in a matter, a lot of times what they're really saying is, is I didn't see the, the battle line so strong that I wasn't willing to take a chance. But when the battle lines are really set against you and you are really looking into the face of fear and death, courage is needed, a real courage. I find often that I am the lion in the story of the Wizard of Oz. Cowardice is what we express when we hold back bold moves for fear of the damage that could come after us, right? Something, I don't know what it is, but it convinces us that we will lose if we act. If we move, we will lose, we will incur damage. And so we pull back all of our bravery. This is why we need prayer. This is why we prayed for it earlier. Courage is a defined quality for a disciple. We see Jesus acting courageously. He lived and he died courageously, and us likewise as his disciples will live and die courageously. Because for the Christian, the battle lines will often feel like they are set against us. Enemies in front, enemies behind. Now, if courage doesn't come from within, where does it come from? I will contend today that it comes from the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit infuses us with the courage that we need. And I actually made the case last week that if you look at Peter, before the Holy Spirit baptizes and immerses him and shows up to empower him for ministry, you see him hiding from servant girls trying to disappear into the crowd. But then very shortly after, you see him preaching boldly in front of a whole city. No take backs. Everyone can see. He's gone viral, and he doesn't care. And what's the big difference? The Holy Spirit has given him courage. That is not some spark that he found from deep within after he read a book or something or saw a, a motivating story. The Holy Spirit gifted him with that. You see, courage is something that God has given us in the Holy Spirit because in Jesus we have no need to protect ourselves anymore. In Jesus we don't have any need to insulate ourselves from damage. We are free to incur loss. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians and this is a passage we looked at last week. Again, we're synthesizing a lot of the last three sermons into this one, but Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. You want to memorize that. Provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But it doesn't feel like that, does it? I mean, I hear what he's saying, but it just doesn't feel like that. It feels like when temptations come to be a coward, there's no way out. There's no way but just to take the easy way out, to take the most cost-effective way out, to take the safest way out. That's what it feels like. But Jesus has proven that he has given us a way out by giving us the ultimate way of escape from even escaping death itself. What he has done on the cross has provided a way of escaping even death. How much more will he provide a way of escaping sins and temptations to be a coward today, even when the battle is hot against us? Because we've never had a battle like the one we have with death. And he's given us a way out of that. So I, I see Paul talking and I hear Joab talking about being courageous, but still all I can think about is myself. I need courage. So what I'd like to do is just look at what does it mean to be strong for our people and courageous for our people? That's his first part of his, his little speech there. Be courageous. Be courageous for your people. What is that? 
Who is your people? For them back then, it was those that they were responsible for. Family, friends, even the person right next to them in the trench, the person on the other side in the trench, those that they were shoulder to shoulder with, deeply known by, responsible for, and I think it's the same with us. Those who we are in deep community with. And listen, in a room this big, you're not really, really in deep community with everybody, are you? Any more than everyone is a Facebook friend is a real friend to you. I looked at, as of the time I wrote this, I wrote it down. This isn't going to seem very impressive to some of you. I have 555 Facebook friends, right? Some of y'all are probably twice that. 555 friends. But really, come on now. You know, I was at a conference this week, and I bumped into a guy that accepted my friend request just a couple days before, right? And I knew who he was, and I went up and introduced myself, and he introduced himself back as if we'd never met. And he said, yeah, this is my name. And he gave me his name. I said, yeah, we just became Facebook friends. He goes, oh, huh, well, you know how that is, though. I just said accept because we had mutual friends. That's what it's become. <laughs> In a room this big, not everybody is deep community, are they? I mean, you, if you're a partner in legacy, this is your people, but you also have your people. I think this is a little bit closer to what it's talking about. Your people, the ones that you know deeply and know you deeply, the ones that you are responsible for and the ones who are responsible for you. This is community. And community is not always friendship, by the way. I would contend it's more valuable. Because what friendship is, is it says we are close because of an anchor between us that ties us together, and that's affinity. Maybe we went to high school together, and that experience builds an affinity for us. Or um, maybe we have a common passion that we like to indulge in, and that kind of holds us close together enough for us to be kind of tight. Or, or maybe our personalities just kind of work together. That's affinity-based. That binds us in friendship. But in community, it's the blood of a king that binds us, right? I'd say that's much more valuable. It just costs more. It costs more. I'm not saying that community cannot be friendly. I'm saying that they are not always the same, right? I think this is usually what people look for whenever they join a local church or they join a community group of some kind. They want a people that could be their people, my people, right? People who will know me. Everybody, they want to be known, even if it's a painful process. People that will be responsible for them. Even if in the beginning we say, hey, stay out of my stuff. We still want people to be responsible for us, to love us, to consider us, to know us. I think being courageous for our people has basically two faces to it. One of them is that we talk to our people about God, and we talk to God about our people. That's what it requires, being courageous for our people is where we talk to our people about God and we talk to God about our people. And all of that's going to require a very deep courage. Let's look at talking to them, our people, about God. That means leading each other honestly and lovingly. And that requires a lot of courage, a lot, a lot of courage, because it means saying things you don't want to say. Think about that. It means saying things that you just don't want to say. That requires courage because you're risking rejection. You're risking their affection, their availability. They might misjudge you. They might misunderstand you. They might return jabs at you. It means a lot could be lost. 
This is why we always search for just the right thing to say whenever we want to approach somebody on maybe a a harmful pattern in their life, something that's going to require great courage from you, right? This is why it's so hard to get out of our mouths, isn't it? You think about it, you think about it, you think about it. God, how do I say this? How do I say this? It's such a hard conversation to start. We we could do it up here all day. Hey, hey, listen, man, I just... I want to talk to you about something that I see in your life. Or, or, or hey, 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 I just, I've been praying, and, 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 and the Lord has just been showing me. I mean, we stutter even in our minds, but we can't get it out of our mouth, can we? I mean, we'll spend two or three hours with somebody, and we'll wait till the very last second before we talk to them about that very, very, very important thing, because it's hard. It requires a lot of courage to correct somebody. I think one time... We do this. It might just be because it's kind of clunky. But most of the time, we skip courage and slide towards that wider road that is cowardice. It's because we are secretly hoping that somebody else will get their stuff fixed on their own or with somebody else's help. And that gives us the way of escape. We don't have to do anything. Or, or another thing that we can do sometimes is just talk to them maybe about some of what they're struggling with. Be partially honest but only honest enough to where we could stay safe. And it doesn't sound like a real correction, right? You see, good biblical correction is both honest and loving, and it cannot be done without courage. Good biblical correction is not telling somebody what you would do if you were in their shoes. It's also not telling somebody what they do that is very annoying to you, right? It's virtually, it's essentially saying, I feel like this is hurting you, and it's not really a fight against you and me. We're not really fighting. I'm just going to show you what the Bible says. I think it's going to be an issue between you and the Bible. There. This is how I interpret the Bible. This is how I interpret your life. And they're slamming into each other. I think a lot of times when we struggle and we kind of drop the ball on correction, it's because it, it turns into a fight between one person and another person. Right? They feel accosted. They feel judged. But if you say, hey, listen, this is why I'm saying what I'm saying. Help me. Am I reading this wrong? Because this is the way I see this. And this is the way you're acting. And I love you too much. So here, what do you think? The fight is no longer between you and them. It's between them and this word that they're going to have to wrestle. That's what it means. That's what it means to biblically correct somebody. So just an example, when someone self-promotes or they self-commercialize, and you see them just evaporating in just a self-fascination because they're so insecure. And you know, you know it's because they're not satisfied in how God sees them. So they have to have everybody else love them and approve them and give them favor. Or maybe it's someone that's just knee-deep in some sort of an addiction, and they're really struggling with that. And you know in your heart it's because they don't really understand how good God is. So they start to find goodness in God's creation, and they just get addicted, hoping hoping that the 19th time they try something, they get the same rush that they got the first time they did it, which is why we're addicted, by the way. We're always chasing that first rush. You know all of this. So if you came and you said, hey, listen, don't do that anymore because it's annoying. Nobody likes it when you do that. That's not good biblical correction because what they might say is, oh my gosh, no one likes it when I do that? Well, then I need to change my behavior so people will like me more. Now it's shame-based. It's not gospel-centered, it wasn't loving, and it definitely wasn't biblical. But what you can say is, hey, listen, you don't have to be addicted, man. I see this as an addiction. All of your time goes there. All of your treasure goes there. All of your talk ends up there. I think this is an addiction for you. Help me. I might be wrong, but this is what the Word says about addiction. I'm going to just submit it to you. What do you think? You see how that works? It's a little bit different. 
It takes courage, though. It, it takes courage. It's just easier to say, stop it. Nobody likes that. That's easy, but it's also cowardice. On the flip side, and this, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but there's also a better way to encourage people. Not just correct, but encourage. Right? So encouragement can look a lot like flattery sometimes. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with flattery. I think it's fun to do that. Hey, I love it when you do this. Hey, you're awesome at that. That's kind of flattery. That's an easier thing to lay down because you're saying something easy that will be received easily. It's just easy work. It even makes you look a little bit good for giving it to them, right? It doesn't take a lot of heavy lifting. But when you can encourage somebody by pointing out God's design and God's clarity in their action, that's different. So what I'm saying is, it's the difference between, hey, you're very hospitable. It's super cool when you do that. I'm very comfortable when I'm around you or in your home. That's flattery, and it's good. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a great thing to say to somebody. But whenever you say, hey, listen, whenever you are hospitable, it shows me God a little bit more clearly because God is incredibly hospitable to me. And I'm reminded of that whenever you take care of me, and I find comfort here. I'm just comfortable here, and it reminds me of how comfortable I am around God or how much comfortable he wants me to be around him. Now, that's a biblical encouragement because we're pointing people again to God, right, not to themselves because our role in encouragement is to really show people God's glory and reflect God's glory, not generate our own glory. So, yes, we do. We talk to our people about God, and we also talk to God about our people, right? I think this also requires a lot of courage, though, right? Because it's earnest, consistent prayer, but I would contend it needs to be informed prayer. And this is where the courage comes in. Asking people where they need prayer. That's what it means to be informed. Asking people where they need prayer and then letting them know that you are praying for them. Everybody in this room is taking hits right now. You, you came in here taking hits. You still have scar tissue from hits that you've been taking. Not a single person in this room doesn't have something that they need deep, earnest prayer, consistent prayer on, passionate prayer on. We, I mean, if we had cards on everybody's lap and I said, write down the big thing where the battle lines are set against you and you really need prayer, <laughs> no one in this room is turning in a blank card. Everybody has things. Everyone has a battle set against them. Enemies in front, enemies in back. All of us have mountains we need moved. We need hungrier hearts, more wisdom, more endurance, on and on and on. Right? Do you know the state of the union of your people? Your people. Do you know what they need prayer for? Or whenever you pray for them, do you get to their name and their face and then you just kind of throw something up that's generic because you're not quite sure? There's nothing wrong with praying generically. But do you know them intimately enough to know how to pray specifically? And do you know when that prayer is moving the needle? Do you know how their state of the union is changing over time? You see, that takes courage to develop that kind of relationship. It takes courage. It also means praying with people right there on the spot, right? This also takes a lot of courage. I'm afraid that the phrase, I'll be praying for you, has started to translate over time to, I will have good thoughts for you. Right? We say it on the way to the car. We say it when we hang up the phone. Hey, I'll have good thoughts. I mean, I'll pray for you. Right? Because it kind of means the same thing. It does. Even those far from Jesus will take your good thoughts and won't put up a fight. Right? They will. It's kind of become a generic moment of silence for people. 
But whenever we stop the moment and we say, hey, 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 before you leave, I know this is awkward, but can we pray right now? Can I pray for you right in this moment? Now that takes courage because it's always awkward. It never like perfectly fits into a moment. You know, have you ever been in that moment where someone says, hey, 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 can we just pray for that right, right now? It's always a little bit inside of me that goes, oh, okay, I guess we can. It's a little bit of an abruptness to it, right? It doesn't just kind of fit into something. That's why it requires courage. It's much easier to just go with the flow. I'll be praying for you. Thank you. And it's done. I like how when I read the 17th chapter of John, Jesus is not just having good thoughts for us. He's pouring his guts out in a high priestly prayer in a courageous way, and he's about to go to a garden where he'll do it even more. Shows me that intercession is costly. It's very costly. This is how we take care of our people. We talk to God about our people. We talk to our people about God. Now, what does it mean for us to be strong and courageous for the cities of our God? That was the second part of what Joab said, right? What does that mean? That's a little bit harder to draw a straight line from one to the other, by the way, right? Because we don't really have a nation full of the cities of God as a national. We don't really have that anymore, not even in America. America's not, if you believe that America is a Christian nation, I'll let you believe that. I don't agree with it. Don't email me. I'm not really, I don't really care. I just don't think that we're a, a nation full of the cities of God, okay? So it gets a little clunkier, but I will say, I will say that God loves this city, and this city, Knoxville, belongs to God. I don't think God has a special covenant with Knoxville, but I believe that Knoxville belongs to God, just as I believe that every city belongs to God. Every city. Look at Psalm 24. I'll put it up on the screen. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. That's everything. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Listen, there is not anything in all of the cosmos that God does not look at and say, mine. That belongs to me. Now, when we do that, it's called stealing. The money is mine, job's mine, wife is mine, family's mine, my life is mine, it's mine, mine, mine. When we do that, it's called stealing. When God does that, it's a proper declaration of ownership, right? So God, and I love it that he has done this, and I ask for more, he has wrecked me for Knoxville. I love other cities, but they're not Knoxville, right? I even have a hometown. It's not Knoxville, but I love Knoxville. Knoxville's a city that I live and die for. But I beg God for tears and more compassion for Knoxville, for this city. This is the one I, I cry out for, that I hit my knees for, and I beg, I beg for more insight into. I want more insight, I want more love, but especially, I want more courage for this city, for my city. I want more courage, you know? I'll tell you what, let's do this, just to change it up a little bit more. Let me pray just for a moment that God would give us courage for this city, not just courage for our friends that need us to be courageous, but let's pray for this city that needs us to be courageous too. Amen? All right. Father, I thank you. Just as we have each other's attention in this room, Lord, we ask that you would give us ears and eyes to understand this city more. Yes, we need wisdom. Yes, we need compassion and, and heart and tears and a, and a brokenness in us regarding how this city is. But Lord, we need courage. I need courage, Father, to call things as they are to speak lovingly, but very clear and very compellingly. 
Lord, give us a brave spirit, a strong spirit for this city, which belongs to you. Knoxville belongs to you. We love you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The same rubric we just put up there, I'll do it again. We need to be strong and courageous as we talk to our city about God and we talk to God about our city. It's the same exact thing, right? Because Knoxville needs to hear the gospel. It means we need to carry it. Knoxville has some tangible needs that need to be met, which means we, we got to meet it. A lot of spiritual orphans bumping into each other all around Knoxville means we need to be family to receive them. So when we speak to our city about God, we are relaying how God's love changes everything and how a life with Jesus far surpasses and is more satisfying than any life outside of Jesus. That's how we do that. It's very simple, but it requires great courage, doesn't it? Requires incredible courage. And this is where we find cowardice even faster. To be able to call sin, sin. Not just a different lifestyle, not just a different preference, but to call sin, sin. To be able to tell people that they are dead. Listen, I've had a few moments. I've had a few moments in this city where I've sat across the table with people and said, listen, at some point in the conversation, had to say, listen, (laughs) bro, you need to know right now, I really don't think you're a Christian. I think you, you are destined for destruction right now. That's how I see this whole thing. And that's the most loving thing I could have said. It, and out of that, two of them became Christians. They need that clarity. The clarity has to be pronounced. They need to know honestly, compassionately, that they have a deep need and that there is a deep answer. And it won't cost them anything, and it will cost them everything. It's all-encompassing. They need people to be clear and loving and, yes, courageous. And that requires time because that kind of thing doesn't happen in a drive-by relationship, right? It just doesn't. It happens well in relationships that have evolved over time where trust is fluently moved back and forth. So that means that your friends that are not here, not in any church, not in love in Jesus, your friends need to know that you are close enough to them and they are close enough to you that even though you might start talking about Jesus, they know that you love them. Think about that, because a lot of us in the room, a lot of us, we struggle with with relationships with those who are not in the church or not in Jesus, because there's this unspoken rule, and we can talk about pretty much anything, but if we start talking about Jesus, things lock down, right? I had a buddy in in, uh, Florida I got to know, and we were buds for years. I would still say we're still kind of buds, but he is bold enough to tell me every time I start talking about Jesus, this is how it sounds. There you go again, talking about Jesus, man. We were having such a good time, Luke. We were talking about this and that and this and that. And then you go and you just kind of drop the Jesus card. Now it's all awkward and tense. Thanks for that, you know. And he's half joking, but he's really half not, right? But at least he knows I love him. At least he knows I love him. I love him enough to move through that tension, right? But it is hard, and it requires great courage. It requires great courage, I think being the cowardly lion here is incredibly easy. I think the road is wide that finds these conversations between us and our friends coming and going, coming and going without having any substantial conversation at all. Just empty. So we do speak to the city about our God, and then we also speak to God about our city. And this is just begging God for revolution, both in the church and in the dying ranks. Begging God for revolution. This requires great courage because what we're asking for seems almost impossible almost impossible. I mean, when you read, and if you haven't, I encourage you to to do a skim of history, the history of revivals and great awakenings. 
Just, just a cursory, go to Wikipedia even. Just a cursory reading of what God has done in some places at some moments where he just changes everything. Half the business is shut down. They're planning churches so fast just to keep up. It's amazing what God does in that. But it's so seemingly impossible. If the battle is ever set against us, it's set against us here. Knoxville is full of perishing people. Full. You hear me say the statistics all the time. 84% likely, likely in the 80s. It's perishing. So we have to pray. We have to pray that great churches are planted, great community groups, missional communities, life groups, cell groups, family groups, whatever you want to call it, all over the city, that they grow and that they're healthy. We have to pray for that, not just for our church, but for other churches. You know, I was texting a buddy today, um, it is church planting in South Knoxville. I'm trying to get my bearings right that way. In South Knoxville, that's South, right? All right. South Knoxville, and uh, just asking him where he needs prayer. Because he's a health teacher. I, we need him to make it. We need him to make it down there. In fact, let's pray for him right now. I know it's our third time to pray. I think it's good for us, right? Father, I just pray for Jim Floria. <clears throat> pray for Forward Church, Father. As they're starting, they're in their preview services, and I know he's looking to gain steam right now. He has a lot on his plate. He has a lot in his face. He has a lot going on even for a church that size. And I just pray that you give him endurance, endurance and a grace to enjoy what he's doing right now, that he avoids the pitfalls of burnout, that he avoids just that discouragement that comes and washes over pastors. Lord, that you would love him, draw him deep, and give him sweet time, even with you today. Pray for that church, that it is powerful and explosive in that part of the city. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We need to pray for great churches to be planted. I think we need to pray for unhealthy churches to be shut down. I'm not going to name any today. We're not praying for that right now. <laughs> but they're out there, right? They're out there, and they're not doing a great job. They're not doing a great job. And we know from looking at the book of Revelation, Jesus is not opposed to slamming the door on a few churches. And I think we need that as well. We need to pray for disciples to replicate themselves. We need to pray for awakening in our church. We need to pray for revival in our city. Revival in our city. So Joab, in this moment with arrows flying and smoke everywhere, he says, be courageous, Legacy Church. Be courageous in your living rooms, at your dining room table. Be courageous in your family moments. Be courageous in your DNA groups. Be courageous in your calm group settings. Be courageous with those that you're responsible for and those who are responsible for you. Be courageous. And then, Legacy Church, be courageous for Knoxville. Be courageous for East Tennessee. Be courageous for our surrounding area. And then, then, let God do what he deems to be brilliant. Because that leads us to the third and the last point. What about when we fail? What about when we fail at this? Joab does say something very beautiful. He puts a great exclamation point on this speech. It was spoken from a place of trust, that God is sovereign. We're going to succeed some over here. We're going to fail some, and God will do what God will do. He says, let God do what seems good to him. Sometimes the battle lines are not just set against us. Sometimes it washes over us, and we lose. We lose. Carnage, damage, all around us. And it's very easy for us in that moment to say, my failure, 
to be courageous has hurt my people, and my failure to be strong and courageous has hurt this city, and I don't know how a win is supposed to be pulled out of this mess. I don't know. So for that answer, I'll just point you to the cross, and that is the place where we carry all of our failures. The cross. It's the path between God's people and the place where we lay our failures. It's a well-worn path. Right? The cross is this scene where we come and we lay our cowardly life down. Every cowardly day that we've ever lived and every cowardly day that is coming before us, we lay it down. And Jesus takes these cowardly days and he gives us grace and love and even courage. Even courage. He fits us with strength when our knees are wobbly and our heart fails us. I love Hebrews 12. It is not written specifically to this, but it is a good application of this. So what happens when we fail? Hebrews 12 says this. For the moment of all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Right. So you're going to fail. You're going to hit some foul balls. Discipline comes. It's good for you. It's really good for you, especially if you're trained by it. And then he continues this in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. We have confidence. Have you failed? Yes. Have confidence before the Lord. But, but why? I'm failing. Yeah, but you're not having confidence in your performance. You're having confidence in the performance of Jesus for you. And God is ahead of you and he is above He's brilliant. He's working things out, even in your failures, even in your failures, particularly in your failures. You see, this cross also proves to be a place where all the cowardly acts of mankind to destroy Jesus fails. And God did what seemed good to him. I mean, we bolted our king to a tree, and then we took a victory lap because we were real proud of ourselves after we did that. I mean, to the point where Jesus said, don't just forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Of course, there will be a day when we did know what we will do. And I'll, I'll be honest, I don't even know if there will ever be a day on this planet where we will totally know what we have done. I think there will be a day, though, where we will see it clearly as it happens. Enemies in front, enemies behind, yet God prevails even on the cross, and we benefit. It is good for us, and it glorifies our King. So if you are failing to be courageous today, I'll point you to the cross it's that place where we carry our cowardice, we walk away with strength. There is no mistake, hear me clearly, there is no mistake that you have made that is beyond the redeeming reach of God. Not a one. So pick up your head, lift your arms, strengthen your knees, and with confidence, deep confidence, approach God with courage, approach those next to you with courage, approach this city with courage, not because you're awesome, but because Jesus was, and he was our courageous hero. You see, we do the best we can, and then we trust that God works around our failures. If God could not work with your failures, he wouldn't have anything left to work with. He's not waiting for us to have a perfect day for him to do anything through us, right? So this mystery liquid, whatever it is that the lion in the Wizard of Oz drank, we have better. We have the blood of a king, as we'll express in communion here in a little bit. The lion did not know his own strength. That's why even as a little kid watching it, I thought, man, that lion is super cool. He's like a lion. Does he know that? Someone tell that guy he's a lion. He's like running from the witch. He's scared of everybody. He doesn't have to be scared of anybody. He's free to have courage. Even more so are we. We have the strength of royalty in our veins. 
Listen, if you are failing today and you fear that others around you are taking a beating for it, maybe you could have done something, maybe you could have said something, and now because you didn't, because you were silent, because you were absent, all you can do is stare in horror at what has happened. If that is you, I want you to look to Jesus where we did worse and God brought his best. Look at the cross. Go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read this to you. Again, it's another excerpt from that book. I think it's true for us, though. The wizard tells the lion, the cowardly lion, there is no living thing that is not afraid when it faces danger. The true courage is in facing danger when you were afraid, and that kind of courage you have plenty. The lion says, perhaps I have, but I'm scared just the same. He said, I shall really be very unhappy unless you give me the sort of courage that makes one forget he is afraid. And that's what we're going to pray for today, that God would give us a courage through his Holy Spirit that makes us forget that we are afraid. Because Jesus does say, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me, let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for being so good and so sweet to us, that you've given us confidence and courage outside of ourselves. We can't manufacture a confidence to stand with unwobbly knees. We can't manufacture courage that makes us bold as lions. We can't do that just inside of ourselves because we have these innate great personality and, and, and qualities we can only do it because your Holy Spirit is sweet to us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in all of us. That is how we are courageous, and we know that as a church. Father, we know that we have failed in the past. I have failed in the past at being courageous for my people and for this city. To tell everybody about you and to tell you about everybody. I have leaked in courage, and I have slipped towards cowardice, and I know I'm not alone. Father, I know that there are some in here who are stricken and horrified at what the lack of courage has done around them. And I would ask that you would lift their drooping hands and strengthen their weak knees and show them how they have confidence, not in their actions, but in your actions for them. Lord, I know that there are some in this room that are silent and they are scared. That you would burn in us Joab's speech to be courageous for our people, to be courageous for the cities of God and to let you do what you deem well. Lord, I know that there are people in here who have no people, and that is up to us to build around us and to be responsible and to stop waiting for it to just magically and accidentally happen. For us to have our own people, we have to build. We have to be courageous. We have to invest, even if there's loss. Father, I pray for those in here who have no city that they call their own, that you would give them tears and compassion and, yes, courage for this city. For this city. And Father, last, I know that there are those in here who have no king. No king. And all they have is shame. All they have is a long-failed record of their best attempts. And Father, that you would call them and draw them close to you. That you would bring them close to you and show them how sweet you are. Lord, that you would just amaze us and fascinate us with your beauty and your brilliance, that we could be content in you, that we could lay down everything that the world offers us and finally, finally be free, finally find joy, that we too could be saved, 
we could be brought into a family. Lord, we love you, and we just pray that you would move through us as we worship you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.